KFBS. And here we are at the Sitrep Roundtable, coming to you from London. And you, you are very welcome. Well, in the next hour, Afghanistan, can we trust the journalists there to tell us the real story? Death row, almost 20,000 awaiting ex- execution. Where and why? Black widows, why do women want to be suicide bombers? Iraq, are the politicians dumping on democracy? And are the Iranians winding up both sides? MPs on the holidays. Thank goodness for that, says the MOD. And why is today, of all days, All Fool's Day? Perhaps only a fool would claim he knows. Well, there's more to so stay with us and hear it with me in the sit-rep round table, the former foreign policy advisor to the Kremlin, Alexander Nekrasov, from University College London, the global affairs analyst at that place, Dr. Marty McCauley, and the director of the military science programme at the Royal United Services Institute, the former naval person, Michael Codner. Uh, in Moscow today, they've been burying their dead, the remains of 37 of the 39 killed, when two suicide bombers hit the Moscow metro on Monday. Well, this morning, Chechen rebel leader uh, Doku Umarov is reported as saying he personally ordered the attacks and that they were carried out to re- avenge the killings of poor Chechens, as he calls them, by Russian security forces in February. And he's warned there'll be more attacks. Uh, Alexandra, um, who is this man, Doku Umarov? Well, he is the self-proclaimed Prime Minister of Echkeria, as they call the Chechen Republic, and um, he basically replaced uh, Shamil Basayev, who was the uh, ill-fated, I mean, ill-fated in the sense that he was killed by the Russians, but he was in charge of that Beslan massacre in in the school. Yeah. And uh, basically he is now running all the Chechen rebels' uh, uh, across the northern Caucasus, Doku Marov, I mean. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, there was a bit of a confusion after those terrorist attacks when his spokesman said that, no, we did not have anything to do with those attacks. And then Doku Marov uh, came out and said, no, 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 I ordered them personally. Now, the point about the black widows, the women who blow themselves up in on public transport and other places, is that the Chechen rebels think that they are it's much easier for them to penetrate the security cordons and... Yeah, but why would, I mean, Martin, why would the women want to go there in the first place? Because in Chechen society, <clears throat> a widow has no place. Uh, she almost becomes a non-person, and uh, she's way down the social scale. So therefore, it's simpler uh, for uh, Umarov or other recruiting sergeants, if you want to call them that, uh, to say to these widows, right, uh, you'll get a place in paradise if you sacrifice your life. Yeah, but they're going to believe that. I mean, you're suggesting well, they do. Yes, but they do, you see. And uh, he claims, and others claim, there's a whole line behind her. A whole but isn't, there, isn't her. there a link here with uh, the widows of whom? Um, that of killed those who have been killed, they would say, illegally by the Russians. Right. Right. That's the point. In other words, it's revenge. It's revenge and there's also religious revenge. The two things are mixed. Now, the Russian security services would say, well, they're drugged, they're hypnotized, they're brainwashed and all the rest, and they're like walking zombies and so on. Uh, but the evidence is that uh, a lot of them go to their deaths uh, believing they're doing something right. Uh, Michael, in military terms, this is um, not a phenomenon any longer. But up until a few, year, a few years ago, we just couldn't imagine that. We didn't fight against uh, suicide bombers, did we? Uh, it, 
well, in the recent past, suicide bombers um, weren't, weren't the obvious threat. And, and in this particular case, what's, what is strange from a complete outsider's viewpoint is we're talking here about a liberation movement, albeit Muslim, rather than trying to extend a universal caliphate where the rewards of paradise um, uh, uh, are, are there. It just seems that this is, this is a, a more traditional um, uh, uh, freedom campaign rather than um, a uh, al-Qaeda motivated um, uh, religious uh, objective which makes it quite strange but when we saw the um, uh, suicide bombing yes when we saw suicide bombers emerging for example in the the Middle East Mm. um, they were usually male and then suddenly it was almost as if there had been enough killings and that the sisters (coughs) the the widows said Mm. now take me I, this is the way. I mean, anybody who's been a parent would perhaps understand far more the need for to take some sort of revenge. But you know, revenge the next minute, not necessarily a year later. Martin. Yes, I, there's a problem here. You can go back to Dostoevsky. You can go back to the, his novels that possessed and so on. Where he looked at the Russian terrorists. How does an intelligent Russian, like uh, Lenin's brother Alexander, a brilliant biology student? winning gold medals and so on. Why does he justify... He, he developed a scientific justification of terror. Why does somebody do that? And he wants to sacrifice his life because he believes if he kills the Tsar and the, bu- and the bureaucrats, uh, this will free Russia and so on. So these people, the, the, also psychologically, if you're within a group who are extreme, extreme you become an extremist with them. And uh, everybody becomes an extremist, and everybody brought into that group becomes an extremist, and they begin to accept all these views. Alexander. Dostoevsky's point was that only people who do not believe in God will kill as terrorists. That's the most important thing. Now, all those. I uh, think we should add, just interject, if I may, that those no, no, people who haven't got around to Dostoevsky, the fact well, that he was a, one of the great Russian novelists. Well, yes. well, probably one of the greatest in the world. But uh, the, the point is this, that people confuse those two things. For example, imagine that somebody says to you, you'll go to heaven and you'll have whatever, you know, virgins or whatever, and you go and blow yourself. No, of course not. This has nothing to do with religion. This is brainwashing. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you go back <laughs> centuries and centuries to the Middle East, the assassins, as they were prepared to kill other people and sometimes die obviously uh, the assassins were brainwashed drugs were used otherwise you can't push somebody to blow himself up and by the way uh, against the quran if you in the quran if you kill uh, innocent people you go to hell Right. So, so that doesn't work at all. So, so, so I, I, I can't you, really understand. You, you, no, you try telling them. But, but I mean, certainly, as there's a whole suicide thing. I mean, if you go back, I mean, in in, in the United Kingdom, if you if you went back to 1066, the Battle of Hastings, mm-hmm. um, it was a straightforward way of fighting. That you had three three head cases, as far as I can make out, would want to be the first to die, and they would show their bravery by twirling the flags and going out and meeting an mm. impossible enemy and dying, and that was the sort of, that was the kick-off. Let me come back, um, Alexander, to one thing. Uh, Prime Minister uh, Vladimir Putin, he says the security forces must scrape from the sewers, um, um, the people that did this. That is war talk, which... Is, 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 is a natural instinct. It's not necessarily the, the long-term way of trying to, uh, of trying to change the attitudes in, 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 in Chechnya. Well, I personally think it's, it's, it's the most disgusting way to, to, to respond to a disgusting terrorist act because you basically become a barbarian yourself. 
Because if he would have said these people will be brought to justice and they will stand trial and will answer for their crimes, that's one thing. But basically he just stooped as low as those terrorists and, you know, we're going to kill all of you in response to what you did. And I personally thought it was a disgraceful. Didn't he get elected first time round, however he did, didn't he get elected first time round for cleaning up in uh, Chechnya? Well, sort of, sort of, because he started this com- that campaign yeah. uh, after the, the explosions in the apartment blocks. But the point is this, that a leader, and he's a, pri- okay, he's a prime minister, he's an appointed leader, but on the other hand, you just, you just can't talk like that. Okay, just one last question, say Michael, uh, Martin, Pervia. Um, people in Whitehall are talking about uh, something like this happens, and you get the uh, Dr. Umarov saying that the zones of military operations will be extended. Um, they start looking at capitals like London, um, Paris. If we hit London, they say, you will go to Putin and say, clean up your <coughs> act, rather than just seeking any revenge against the, the British Martin. I'm, I'm a sceptic because the Chechens want a very good press in London and there are quite a few Chechens here and they have a shadow government and some of the members are here. And if they came here and started blowing up English people, British people, they would alienate, I think, the British public and uh, that would be very bad news for them. And okay. they would side with Putin. Michael, on that, you, you think that's about right? I, I would say that, I mean, there's not a very o- obvious relationship as there are... Uh, between the United Kingdom um, uh, as a target and uh, Chechnya, as there, are, there obviously is in the Middle East, where we're actually actively engaged ourselves, uh, to try and get the narrative that relates the two is, mm. is not particularly straightforward. But certainly, I mean, we're at a very high terrorist alert anyhow at the moment. And, um, right. Um, let's, um, let's turn to Afghanistan. When President Obama popped into Afghanistan last weekend, I heard somebody from the State Department in Washington saying there's a sense of uneasiness in the nation's capital about the way that the Kazai-Obama thing, as he put it, is going. It's nothing to do with the United States' near public <coughs> distrust of Mr. Kazai. It's more to do with the question, is Mr. Kazai distancing himself from Washington. On the line, the head of the Asia programme at the London think tank Chatham House, Dr. Gareth Price. It, it, it is... Um, Kazai is saying to some people, isn't he, that America is not such a good partner after all. Is there anything in that? I think it all dates back to the election. Um, the election was the, the big hope for the, for the US and other countries in Afghanistan that there'd be a new government with legitimacy able to come in and act after military operations. And I think the vote-rigging that went on in that election has seemed to diminish Karzai's standing in Afghanistan and, and in the US. He has a difficult position. I mean, it is very, very easy sometimes uh, for to say, well, you know, Karzai is involved in sort of corruption or he's not coming up Trumps, etc. He's got to play along everyone, hasn't he? Including Iran, um, including uh, Pakistan, including the warlords. That's true, I, but I think the U.S. is, is the main, his main focus, and I think you know this decision to invite Ahmadinejad recently was seen by the U.S. as a, as a, a snub for the U.S. in turn not inviting Karzai to Washington, and and it's hard to imagine that Karzai thought it would be seen as anything else. So I think it's the U.S. relationship dominates, but as you say, he's got to balance Iranian influence in in the west of Afghanistan, Pakistan influence in the south. Indian influence. Um, India is one of the largest aid donors now to Afghanistan. So it's a whole host of different different things to balance. 
The, the idea of India being the biggest uh, or one of the biggest aid donors to Afghanistan also is reminded that there is a suspicion between Pakistan and India has been since 1947 over Kashmir. And therefore, there's a suspicion, suspicion of, of regional influence. I think it's difficult. I don't, I don't think India necessarily has gone out to alienate Pakistan by its involvement in Afghanistan. I think, you know, in India, they argue that uh, India and Afghanistan have, have always been pretty close and the Taliban was the exception rather than the rule. But the fact that Pakistan doesn't believe that means that, you know, it doesn't matter what India's intention was, really. And there's a perception that Afghanistan is becoming a, a, the scene of rivalry between India and Pakistan to the detriment of Afghanistan. I was um, watching, this is about 10 days ago now, the um, Chief of the General Staff and Pakistan General Staff, uh, General uh, Ashfaq Kanyani, and the Foreign Minister, wasn't he was in Washington as well, Shamahubt uh, Qureshi. That Washington visit was remarkably important. Yes, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to know what's going on at the moment. I mean, Pakistan has always, you know, at six monthly intervals or annual intervals, arrested senior Taliban figures. But over the past few weeks, months, it's really stepped up and appears to be a much, a much more active partner in, in, in the fight against the Taliban and al-Qaeda. But even this, I mean, there, there were questions raised that, you know, many of these people arrested were the actual interlocutors that the UN was using to, to start talks with the Taliban and that Pakistan had perhaps arrested them to stop that line of communication. So there's still, there's still mixed signals, but the, the rhetoric seems much more positive. Right, Dr. Price, thank you very much indeed. Um, this Pakistan-India um, relationship, um, sorry, Pakistan-American relationship, uh, Martin, is crucial, isn't it? It's absolutely crucial because you know, Pakistan, from the American point of view, is, is the number one partner in that part of the world. Without Pakistan's support, if Pakistan uh, chooses to become neutral, uh, then whom are the Americans to, to bank on? And uh, then they would have no help in Afghanistan, they would lose in Afghanistan. So Pakistan is absolutely crucial. Now, Pakistan has a choice, and the choice is China. There's a close Chinese-Pakistani military relationship, and, of course, the Americans are aware of that. So therefore, the, and from Pakistan's point of view, they seem to be obsessed with India and the expansion of Indian influence in... Oh, Pakistan? Yes, uh, the expansion. They've of, always been obsessed with India. Of, of Indian I mean, influence you know, you can't in Afghanistan. Have what happened. Yeah, Indian influence in Afghanistan, because from an outsider, I find it difficult when when the Pakistanis, um, uh, when the Indians say, "No, we're not there to take over Afghanistan and surround Pakistan." Mm. Sta uh, Pakistan seems to see themselves being encircled. Right, Michael uh, Michael Codner, is there any military evidence to suggest that all these um, all these the politicking between, let's say, warlords and Kabul, India, Pakistan, the intervention of Iran, for example. Does it make any difference in the military sense? Uh, um, uh, there is the issue over Iran, and that is that the, um, the scale of the problem in Afghanistan um, demands that uh, Iran is involved um, to a considerable extent in the areas where Iran has influence. And the fact that Karzai is talking to the Iranians, um, the man from Mars would say this makes eminent sense. When he actually starts to do it, it's another matter, of course. Mm. But um, this, is, th 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 this seems to be a necessary requirement. <coughs> On the subject of... Um, of uh, Pakistan, I was uh, chairing a meeting with the where the Pakistani uh, chief of navy was speaking, 
And on the subject of China, I was amazed when he was asked the question about the relationship with China, quite how positive he was, the extent to which he was really quoting from senior Chinese leadership. But he was using uh, some of those very elegant metaphors and things that this particular um, man had used, but it, accepting that this was an extremely strong relationship. And I think this is very much rhetoric related to the India problem, which, of course, um, uh, was reinforced by the Mumbai bombings. And the China, of course, is building a naval base in Pakistan. Yeah. Is it? Yes. Why? Why? Because uh, they base. are building bases in Pakistan, in Sri Lanka, and in uh, in southern Myanmar as well. Yes, but they're building bases, not building Chinese bases. Yes, the chi for Chinese ships, commercial and military, the dual purpose. And they're putting in the money, and I think they're transferring technology. And we think the European the Union's con convoluted, don't we? And the next thing the Chinese want yes. is a base in Arabia. And then they'll have one in East Africa. That's the next goal. Because then you'll have this street of pearls, yeah. which you go from China right to Africa, which will protect uh, all Chinese investment in Africa. And remember that at least two million Chinese citizens working in Africa at present. It's really a big operation. I mean, the, the, the Chinese are extending these rings of pearls. This is the third, isn't it? <laughs> um, it, it achieving um, a global presence in the maritime sense. Uh, and for that, you do need forward bases, particularly if you don't have um, the, the huge sea bases that the Americans have. And you need those land bases to extend your profile, as we did in, in our days of empire with all our sea bases around the world. Before 1968. Indeed. Yeah. Um, to find out what's going on um, accurately, especially in Afghanistan, is sometimes not as easy as it appears to be. I mean, if you look at the television, what do you believe? If you listen to the radio, what do you believe? And what should you believe in your newspapers? Now, last week, last week, um, if you were listening, you'd have known that we raised the point with the, the Times defence editor, Deborah Haynes. And we made the point that often there appears little new for journalists to ask the military in Afghanistan. Now, sometimes, of course, the people on the spot are under pressure to keep in with the NATO media relations system, and so the questions they would like answered are rarely voiced. Um, on the line from Kabul at the moment is Jerome Starkey, also of the Times, and that newspaper's correspondent in Afghanistan. Jerome, how much are British journalists, especially under NATO control? Well, in one sense, uh, British journalists aren't under NATO's control at all. Um, any journalist in Britain is free to travel uh, to Afghanistan and to do their best to report what's going on here uh, without any contact or involvement with NATO. But uh, the control or the loss, perhaps, of some independence comes when those journalists choose to embed with NATO or coalition forces in Afghanistan. And it's through that process, and it varies slightly from country to country, but it's through that process that journalists are forced to sacrifice some of their independence in order to get access uh, to the front. Has that always been the case, do you think? Well, this is really something that's uh, come out of the embed process. Um, I mean, and I'm certainly while I've been uh, reporting in Afghanistan, that's been... Uh, the primary way that most journalists have tried to get to uh, some of the most dangerous parts of the country. But obviously, um, there were embeds of a sort during World War II uh, where journalists were given rank and then the system seems to have uh, faded out of use slightly and uh, really uh, came to the fore again during the Iraq conflict. Uh, but certainly, uh, for most of the time that British journalists have been covering 
the modern, the most recent conflict in Afghanistan, uh, yeah, the embed process has been a very heavily managed uh, affair by which journalists are allowed uh, to see, you know, parts of Afghanistan uh, with British forces, parts which are often too dangerous for them to visit alone. But um, in order to get that access, they have to sacrifice their independence and they have to give permission to British censors uh, of a sort, military censors, to approve their stories before they're filed. You see, sometimes when I'm um, going through all the papers, and I suppose I go through about, I don't know, eight, nine, ten a day um, from different countries, I get a sense that everybody was, was at the same briefing because the language is the same, the emphasis is the same. Or am I just misreading it? Well, it's quite possible. I mean, certainly a lot of the stories um, that come out of Afghanistan, uh, or a lot of the stories about Afghanistan, I should say, uh, come out of Ministry of Defense briefings or Whitehall briefings, DFID briefings, Foreign Office briefings. Um, the, the embassy in Kabul runs video conferences, but they run those video conferences not for the journalists here, uh, but for the journalists back in London. Uh, and so very often uh, correspondents sat in their offices in London or who, who make the trip to Whitehall to a conference room uh, will get more access to the senior NATO commanders in Afghanistan than the correspondents based here. And so if there is a, uh, a sense of deja vu, or if there is a sense that the journalists are reporting the same thing, that's probably where it comes from, although I'm, I'm not there myself, so I, I couldn't really say. Yeah. Have you had any, uh, any difficulties with the, uh, with the authorities, the media controllers? Well, certainly, um, I always experience two things uh, on the embed that I've done. Invariably, um, although when you first turn up, some soldiers uh, might be a bit wary of you, might be a bit reticent, um, the, the soldiers on the ground, the people who are doing the heavy lifting, um, are usually really, really grateful and pleased to have a journalist there because they know that you're going to report on what they're doing and you're going to uh, tell their families and tell their friends back home what's happening. And invariably, uh, they're incredibly hospitable, uh, after all, incredibly friendly um, and, and often very candid about uh, their concerns, their fears, and also uh, their hopes and, and what they've achieved. The problems that I've had have, have never been uh, with those soldiers. They've always been with the media handlers. Um, these are sort of semi-specialist soldiers, often drawn from different branches, different trades, sometimes not even from the same regiment that you're embedding with. And they're sent along effectively as a minder and a sensor to make sure that um, you you don't break any of their rules and that you don't report anything uh, that contravenes any of their rules. And I've had issues with them because ostensibly the rules were agreed by the Ministry of Defence and, uh, and, and the editors of Fleet Street and the, the broadcasters. The rules are designed to stop journalists broadcasting anything that could be operationally sensitive, anything that could put soldiers' lives at risk, things like troop numbers, weapon capabilities, tactical uh, and operational information. Uh, and most journalists would never want to broadcast that would never want to do anything because of the nature of an embed when you live with soldiers on operations is you are um, just by exposure, by proximity, privy to information that could help the enemy. Uh, and so that's why there's a, there's a process in place to try and give uh, the Ministry of Defence, to give the military an opportunity to check that you're not uh, going to do anything to jeopardise anybody's safety. But invariably, um, on almost every occasion that I've embedded uh, with British forces over the last three and a half years that I've been based in Afghanistan, the media minders have used that opportunity, that, that checking process, as a chance to try and editorialize my stories. And there's been incidents where I've had video footage of soldiers uh, f uh, uh, from the parachute regiment 
firing a 50 cal machine gun and the soldier wasn't wearing his body armor. Now, I was put under huge pressure not to release that clip, not because of operational security, not because that clip would endanger anybody's life, but because that was very politically sensitive. Uh, there were issues at the time surrounding soldiers' welfare and soldiers having the right kit, uh, and, and obviously soldiers uh, who had been killed because they didn't have the right body armor in the past. And so whether or not soldiers were seen to be wearing their kit was, was a political issue. Um, and I was put under huge pressure. In fact, the media uh, minder who was with me at the time threatened that I would never get another embed in Helmand if I didn't agree to change that clip for something else. And, and I have to say, um, it, it's something I'm ashamed to admit now, but at the time, uh, the prospect of never getting another embed was incredibly daunting. I relied on spending time with British troops in Helmand for my livelihood. And so I backed down and I removed that clip and I... Uh, used a clip instead supplied by a combat camera team. Um, but that's certainly not the only occasion. There have been occasions where soldiers have said things, um, very damaging things about some of the, but, but nonetheless candid and accurate uh, things about, some of, about the Afghan government, about some of the uh, people they've been forced to partner with and some of the challenges they've faced uh, in those partnerships because of corruption, because of nepotism, because of the uh, very complex uh, and challenging nature of the sort of Afghan feudal government that exists in parts of Helmand. And when I've uh, gone to report that, uh, which is an integral part, and, and I think increasingly uh, the soldiers and the, the diplomats are realizing that, but certainly uh, a few years ago it was seen as uh, less significant or certainly less attention was paid to it. And when I, when I tried to report it, um, again, similar pressure uh, put on me to remove quotes uh, where senior British officers were effectively uh, candid and, and rude about some of their Afghan partners. Jerome Starkey of the Times, thank you very much indeed. Um, Michael Cottoner, um, uh, Starkey raises quite a lot of things that we have to take on board, don't we, even if we just sit down and read his newspaper. Uh, absolutely, and um, the, the issue of, of embeds and the deal that is done uh, to allow embeds the access they get, as one, as, as, as he mentioned, um, was um, a very big issue in the last uh, war in Iraq, to some extent the first Gulf War, and of course we have the Falklands War when the embeds were extraordinarily controlled because they didn't have the communications access. It wasn't access the technology, it was it? CSAT or whatever it was. <laughs> Um, but there, there is this deal, and um, for someone who's actually been in the military and dealt with the media handlers who are in the military, um, I, I completely um, understand what he says uh, about how crude they can be, um, partly through uh, a lack of, of, of deep experience in what they're trying to do. I mean, they are brought in, they may have had some experience, but they're not people who have deep experience, and in some ways, to have a intelligent commander um, managing the media, the commander who are in charge of that unit, who can then explain why the guy's wearing the body armour, almost invariably, if you have that discussion, then what comes out in the media is actually not unfavourable. Um, uh, but uh, basically any reader who has any intelligence would, would realise that uh, you read between the lines when you read war, wartime reporting, because of course many journalists can't say many things, and if you are embedded, the word I hate by the way, uh, with the tropes, of course the commanders are not expecting you to, to write everything and all about the all the hardships and about the mistakes and so on. But I think anyone who is reading war reporting 
does understand and sort of builds a picture himself. I dealt with journalists a lot, and I trained them who were covering Afghanistan, right? So I, I, I understood all the problems. And, of course, if you get a colonel who is a nutter, you know, he will not allow him to write practically anything. It was only, we did it well, brilliantly, everybody loves us, all the locals love us, and so on. But you read between the lines, and even if it's too um, rosy, the report, you can see the pressures coming on the, on, on the hack from the military commanders. Martin, we're heading, uh, heading for an election, general election here in uh, the United Kingdom. Um, the accuracy helps us understand the military issue and the political issue. It's a dangerous time, perhaps, therefore, for government. It's a very dangerous time. It's an explosive time because <clears throat> the government wants to manage the information to present itself in the best possible light because the opposition will then jump on it uh, because it wants, uh, it's looking for information such as uh, the military are not getting the right equipment they've asked for. Um, it's the fault of Whitehall and so on. Uh, and so the government will be as positive as possible and uh, almost certainly censor the information. Right. It's interesting, quickly, Michael, that uh, you mentioned the Falklands War. Uh, for those who can't remember it, it's 1982. A lot of people serving in Afghanistan weren't born yes. then. Um, for technological reasons and also because of political reasons, the, the minder system wasn't right. seems to me, from what Jerome Starkey was telling us, it's still not right. Well, uh, it, it, I think it's, it's very specific to a particular occasion. So it works pretty well in, in, in um, some circumstances and not in others. Um, the, the media obviously need people to look after them and help them. Um, That's right, the hard news. Uh, and there is the issue of operational um, security, mm. which, which is a, a censorship of a sort. But there is also the cultural issue of how much censorship, and I'm not sure that different militaries really have a, a common culture in that respect. So I, I don't know, compared with... Um, the British and Russian military, whether our use of censorship, um, in, you know, formal censorship mm. of the media, um, is, is exactly the same. Mm. OK, it's, uh, it's, what, 33 minutes past the hour. Uh, you're listening to SITREP with me, Christopher Lee, and if you've just joined us, you can catch the whole programme simply by going into SITREP at bfbs.com and clicking on Listen Again. Now, here's a scary statistic. According to AI, that's Amnesty International, there are at least 17,000 people on death row around the world, maybe 20,000. A lot of them in China. And this week, Amnesty International has challenged the Chinese authority to reveal the numbers of people they executed in 2009. Jamie Gordon reports. In the report, Amnesty have said some 714 people were killed in 18 countries last year. But the group have said the real total could be much higher as thousands of executions are thought to have been carried out in China alone. The Interim Secretary-General of Amnesty International, Claudio Cordoni, has told the Chinese authorities to release the figures. So it's a very simple question. If, in fact, there is a decrease in executions in the use of the death penalty, why aren't these figures made public? In the past, we've used uh, uh, estimations, uh, and in any case, whatever figures one can come up from available information uh, grossly underestimate the reality. Thousands of people continue to be killed in China, and we want the Chinese government to give us the exact figures as well as to tell us uh, uh, what is it that they're doing to uh, progress towards abolition. 
Of the other countries involved, Iran is the second worst with around 388, Iraq at 120, Saudi Arabia killed at least 69 people by beheading or crucifixion and 52 people were put to death in the US last year. The report also highlights the numbers on death row around the world. By the end of last year, over 17,000 individuals were awaiting execution with 2,001 people sentenced last year. On a more positive note, the report recognises a reduction in the numbers of countries who have the death penalty. Burundi and Togo outlawed it in 2009, and the number of countries who have abolished the practice is now pushing 100. And Claudio Cordoni is optimistic that the trend will continue. We do see an end in sight uh, for the death penalty. Uh, I've been with Amnesty International for more than 24 years, and I've seen uh, how progressively the death penalty has been eliminated from country after country. More people around the world... Uh, are realizing that this is a punishment that is against human dignity. It doesn't achieve any, any purpose. For the first time in modern history, there were no reported executions in Europe and the former Soviet Union. But with doubts over the figures from the Chinese authorities, it's clear that amnesty still have a way to go before worldwide abolition of the ultimate penalty. Jamie Gordon reporting for Citrap. Martin, um, you're in and out of China. Uh, the Chinese have got a long tradition of executions. I mean, why shouldn't they, if that's what they do? Yes, it's very important to stress that uh, uh, China has a long tradition of public executions and executing uh, small people, uh, those who commit murders, currency speculation and so on. If you go back to the Civil War between the Mao, the Communists and the Nationalists, um, executions were almost normal, uh, massive executions on both sides. And this tradition is carried on. Uh, with the communists to establish their control, they had to execute v- millions of people. And now Chinese civil rights a- activists say, if you actually, uh, about the, uh, the, the ones who actually ac- executed, they are the lower down the scale. Uh, they are the small people. It's very rare for somebody higher up to be executed. And even if somebody very, very high up uh, is reported to be executed, there's no guarantee he has been executed. He may have been moved sideways. It's just to pour on corriger les autres. Because corruption is a major problem uh, at uh, Communist Party and government level. Uh, and apparently uh, some officials are executed. The, the communists uh, go also for uh, the Muslim, Muslim separatists in Xinjiang and in Tibet. Uh, they're quite open about that. They execute those. They also execute those who engage in currency smuggling, in people smuggling and all those, and in drug trafficking. And uh, one of the groups which engage in drug trafficking, uh, accused group, are the Muslims. And so therefore they're targeted as well. But this, it's highly unlikely the Chinese will desist, will in fact declare next year we're not going to execute anyone. It's uh, interesting, uh, Michael, that uh, it's governments that are twitchy about... Uh, capital punishment, isn't it? I mean, the last seven uh, public opinion polls in the United Kingdom, for example, suggested the majority of the public in the United Kingdom uh, would like the idea of capital punishment. Yes, um, when these statistics were announced, one has to remember that that, that, uh, banning uh, execution is not an international norm, nor indeed is this a, a Western norm when you have the difference between Europe and the United States over this particular issue. Um, the, the issues where there would be uh, international condemnation over a suppression of figures, over uh, all the issues that, that um, Martin's just mentioned, um, uh, the corrupt use of execution, but um, not the principle itself, which I happen not to condemn myself, but 
it's uh, it's somewhat different from uh, a, a number of other issues you might talk about. I was, I was reading, uh, Ale- Alexander Krasov, that um, <coughs> uh, Russia, uh, having signed the Council of Europe agreement, um, can't carry out uh, executions. Um, and yet the suggestion, again, is the majority of people in, in, in Russia rather think it's a good way of uh, keeping a lid on crime. Well, I think terrorism, obviously... Uh, is one of the reasons. I mean, acts like terrorism, like we witnessed just oh, well, seven, some days ago, people obviously want those people to be punished. And when you have Prime Minister Putin talking tough, uh, obviously there is a feeling about it. But uh, but generally speaking, the point about the executions, I mean, the notorious press clubs in the KGB, what they did, they put uh, political prisoners amongst criminals, hardened criminals, and just kept them there and said, if you don't talk, you, you will be sitting there and you will die there amongst those criminals. So this, you know, execution, uh, okay, there is a court and, and, and there is a decision to execute somebody, but there are other ways of killing prisoners. And in Russian jails at the moment, there are so many cases of suicide amongst prisoners and suicide, I can say, in inverted commas sometimes. And again, those, you know, system of putting political prisoners amongst hardened criminals. I think the point is this, the governments themselves have to distance themselves from this uh, barbarity. And if the Chinese do, don't want to do it, well, they're pagans. They can do what they want. But civilized governments can't do this. Okay. Now, let's go to Iraq, because it was, I suppose it was, an, it was inevitable. The two main contenders in the Iraq elections are calling foul. One because he lost, and the other because he says the Iranians tried to stop him winning. On the line, the BBC correspondent who covered the election, Andrew North... Andrew, um, Iyad Alawi, the secular alliance leader, won the election, um, but only just. But he did, didn't he? And he's telling you, I heard, that uh, Iran tried to stop him from becoming prime minister. Is that true? That's right. Uh, A very uh, clear and direct accusation that he made to me. In Iraq, winning the election doesn't necessarily mean that you, you win the job of becoming prime minister. What Ayadullahi uh, is talking about, what he said to me, is that uh, um, in the days after the, the results were announced, uh, Iran, he said, invited all the other major players to come and talk to, talk to them, uh, interesting in itself, over in Tehran, um, but uh, not his bloc. Uh, and he said that was one example of, the, of uh, their interference, and he said he was clear they, they wanted to stop him becoming prime minister. He also said that uh, they had been influencing a commission which has been... Uh, uh, vetting candidates for links to the Saddam Hussein's uh, Ba'ath Party. And he says it, this committee has, in effect, been pursuing an, a vendetta against his own bloc because, of course, there are many, many people who have past ties to the Ba'ath Party. Thousands of people were members. And he says they're disproportionately excluding his um, because much of his support has come from the Sunnis. And, and he is basically saying that there is a sectarian agenda, a Shiite sectarian agenda, to try and keep him out uh, of actually uh, becoming Iraq's prime minister. Mr. Lawi is, I mean, he's a secular uh, leader, but he is a Shia. Um, it, 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 is that, does that matter as far as Iran is concerned? What matters, I think, to Iran is partly that he has been quite critical of Iran um, in the past, of its influence in the country. Uh, secondly, because Idalawi does, uh, he openly admits, have past ties to, to the Ba'ath Party. There are some suspicions there. He also has had a lot of support uh, from uh, Iraq's Sunni minority. And this is 
matched by a lot of suspicion among Shiite Iraqis uh, about uh, where exactly Ayatollahi is coming from. On the other hand, he has successfully positioned himself as a man who can reach across the sectarian divide. Although he got a lot of support from the Sunni minority, he also picked up a lot of votes among secular Shiites, and it was really because of that uh, that he was able to just uh, just squeeze ahead of Nouri al-Maliki. But things are getting very complicated now, and uh, you've now also got Muqtad uh, Sada, uh, the cleric uh, planning to hold his own referendum this weekend on who should be Prime Minister. Uh, several names in that, including Ayadalawi's. The end of all this, and it's probably going to take months, it's very possible that neither Ayadalawi or uh, uh, Nouri al-Maliki will end up becoming Prime Minister. Who will? Very hard to say at the moment, because uh, if you look back to 2005, 2006, after those last elections, um, no one had heard of Nouri al-Maliki uh, then. He, he came through as a compromised candidate after months of deadlock over uh, his predecessor, um, Ibrahim Jafri. Um, and it's quite possible, again, that uh, this there will have to be a compromised candidate. Because one other sort of complication to throw into the mix is Muqtada Sadr is, is, is showing that he's still got a lot of power. He did better than expected in, in the elections. But he has fallen out very badly with Nouri al-Maliki. He certainly doesn't, at, at the moment, appear to want to see him take power again, even though he would prefer a Shiite prime minister. Um, so there, again, you can see how the pressure could, could come and possibly will force, force Nouri al-Maliki to step down as well in preference for another Shiite. But I think most people think if, it is go- if there is going to be someone else, it, it, will, it will still be a Shiite. Ayad Alawi has a long way to go um, if he is going to become prime minister. Andrew North, thank you very much indeed. Well, still with me at the separate roundtable, the former foreign policy advisor of the Kremlin, Alexander Nekrasov, from University College London, Dr. Martin McCauley, mm. and the director of the Military Science Programme at the Royal United Services Institute, the former naval person, Michael Kotner. Michael, um, Iraq does not get the UK media coverage it deserves, considering the UK has considerable uh, interest in that place. Yes, I think uh, the withdrawal in 2009 was... Um was uh, was a relief um, for government for um, the British people as a whole and um, and uh, with the big focus on Afghanistan where where all the attention is now not surprisingly Iraq is has fallen off um, uh, out of profile uh, there is of course um, uh, still um, British military engagement there there's the um, naval training in of the Iraqi Navy and there's um, British support within Baghdad. Martin, it's also true, isn't it, that I mean, you, just the British army now more or less admits it can't fight two wars at the same time. The media can't cover two wars at the same time, and the public certainly can't read or listen or watch two wars at the same time. Now, if you look at Iraq, you have the Sunnis, the Shiites and the Kurds, and you look at all the names, and you look at the place names and so on, and the average reader, unless you want to specialise... It's very, very difficult to follow it uh, and think back... Especially when you haven't got troops there and you haven't got that interest. Yes, and, and why should you... Because your, your, your brother or your cousin isn't there, so why should you get involved and become a specialist in understanding what's going on? But the other thing is that it's being reported by the business press because of the oil interest and so on. Iraq is not being ignored. Iraq is a big story from a business point of view, but from a political point of view, it's not all that important. So we ought to turn to the... You, the, but the you turn to the business section of the Times or the other new, the Financial Times and so on. And but then that, you, you see, Martin, that's it. I mean, if, you're, if you're an intelligence officer, 
Where do you go for information about any country, any person, any political situation? You go to the oil companies, don't you, first? Yeah. And that's where you start. You go to the commercial piece, but we go to the banks. And that because is the huge honeypot. They are the people that really have the gen. Yeah, because they have... They're implying people, they, they people have like a, the three of you, aren't you? Yeah, they've got them. their own research people, their own research, uh, if you like, their own think tanks. And they are trying to assess risk all the time. Mm. So therefore, they are up to date. And it's the business to be up to date. Otherwise, they could lose millions. But the Alexander. two big stories about Afghanistan and the mess in Iraq is that the Western-style democracy will never emerge in those two countries. And whatever President Obama and the, the Americans are thinking, there is no way it can work out. In those Do we still places. want to Im, 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 sort of impress them with Western democracy? Well, nobody is impressed any, anymore anyway. But the point is this. Until you have a strong leader in both Afghanistan and Iraq, there will be total mess in both countries. And that, that's the lesson of all those campaigns and wars. And then you get back to 2005 in Iraq after the elections <laughs> there, which were inconclusive, and what followed, uh, inconclusive government and, and violence. So we really ought to take notice what's going on in you know, Baghdad at the moment. Right. Uh, we ought to take notice. It's coming up for Easter. It's Monday, Monday, Thursday today. Um, anybody knows about Monday, Thursday, don't they? Command, I think, is from the Latin. As so, uh, the House of Commons has gone on its holes. It's about going on leave. It's been a devastating, shameful period at the Palace of Westminster. Expenses, next ministers tarting for work as consultants. But one group of MPs has performed with seemingly enormous energy and diligence. They are the members of the House of Commons Defence Committee, the HCDC, MPs from all parties who monitor the Defence Minister or the Defence Ministry and seem to give the MOD a going over every few weeks because they're worth it. Well, the House of Commons Defence Committee chairman is James Arbuthnot. <laughs> the MOD is vulnerable to scrutiny, isn't it? Well, I hope so, and so it should be, because uh, it's the most important uh, role of government to defend our country and the department that carries it out uh, needs to be constantly scrutinized by uh, the people which is us and uh, so that's what we do and the MOD is at the moment particularly vulnerable not just to scrutiny but because it's been operating at such a very high level for so long uh, with uh, such scarce resource considering what it's being asked to do. So it's not just, in, you know, it'd be easy to level a charge of incompetence, wouldn't it? But it's not that. It's a level of pressure, you're saying, um, but perhaps not with the resources to overcome that pressure. Yes, uh, it would be easy to level a charge of incompetence, and some of those, some of those charges have been leveled and uh, have correctly stuck. But the pressure under which the Ministry of Defence is operating is huge. We are essentially... Uh, certainly, until uh, we reduced our forces in Iraq, we were fighting two wars on a peacetime budget. Um, and the peacetime mentality as well, and that was a real concern, so that we never really geared up to the sort of uh, level of resource that Iraq and Afghanistan required. Going through uh, your reports, I've been sort of sitting there every, it seems every couple of weeks or so, there's another one. Five reports this year, is that right? Uh, I think it's five reports in three months or something like that. Well, uh, it, it may be that. I'm surprised. We, we, did, we did some special reports as well, which are the responses yes. to our reports, but it, but it could well be five reports. And not all, necessarily all the evidence was taken this, obviously, this, this, no, this year. Um, but... Uh, 
when I look at some of them, the one on defence equipment, for example, um, the, uh, the response, the annual report and accounts, but the latest one on ISTAR, the effects of ISTAR, the contribution of ISTAR to operations, that is now particularly important, isn't it? Because everything we're doing, we're sort of doing in a, I don't know, ordinary soldiering, ordinary uh, airmanship, and yet, ISTAR is probably the thing that holds it together. Information is absolutely key to winning, um, to winning battles. And we are now collecting a huge amount of information uh, by all sorts of means, by unmanned aerial vehicles, by uh, men and women on the ground, by satellites, by aeroplanes, all sorts of ways. Um, but the, the dishing out of that in- information to the people who actually need it to use it to uh, assess it and uh, work out quite what to quite what to do with it and quite what it means that's the thing that the ministry of defense is going to have to concentrate on more and they recognize that um, but it is absolutely essential to get the information war right um, and uh, so that was one of the things we concentrated on in our ISTAR report um, coming up to a general election will defense in any form, be an election issue? Frankly, I doubt it, because the three main parties are not saying things that are hugely different. The Lib Dems are uh, having a go about the Iraq uh, war, which you were just talking about just now. But uh, since that is a matter of essentially the past now, I don't think it will have much traction in the general election. And since the three parties are all saying much the same thing in terms of funding, I very much doubt whether it will be a huge election issue. There's not, not enough differentiation between the parties to make it an election issue. Is there, any, is there any one issue that you would have them put in and stick to, apart from more money or maintain the present budget, uh, in, in manifestos? Well, the key thing, I think, is getting the... Getting the procurement right, the, there are various decisions which are going to need to be made early in the next parliament, and the getting the changes to the procurement, mostly that Bernard Gray in his uh, defence acquisition report uh, last year, yeah, last year, those are absolutely essential because without that, the Ministry of Defence will continue to waste money. Uh, and by, as somebody said, the wrong equipment for the wrong war at the wrong price. Um, so th- that's the key thing. But, but but overall, what I would like to see come out of the Strategic Defence Review is a reconnecting of the people of the country with the issue of defence, because we've lost that connection, partly because our armed forces are now so small, doing so much with such powerful equipment. Uh, that there's little connection between the people and therefore uh, and, and the armed forces and therefore little understanding. And that's, that's a very important issue that needs to be put right. James Arbuthnot, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Michael, I mean, you follow this all the time and you, have, do, you advise the committee indirectly. I don't, don't personally, but, no, um, but, the, but uh, are your side uh, my colleagues do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also uh, with a new, um, a new government, whichever shade it is, it's likely to be... Much of it could be a new committee, a new, new chairman. Yes. It's a hard act to follow, isn't it, this particular uh, committee? It's done a tremendous amount of work. 
Uh, absolutely, I, I think their work's been been um, been outstanding. The irony is, of course, that you have the Gray report, which everyone latches onto, which is not a House of Commons Defence Committee report, um, because of its high profile and everything else, and indeed the Haddon Cave inquiry, which say rather what was different that? things. The Haddon Cave inquiry was the one about the Nimrod failure, which was uh, which was a formal inquiry led by a barrister, which made con- drew conclusions which uh, which are to some extent at variance with what Bernard Gray says, but at the same time you've got the string of reports from the Defence Committee, which just don't get the same media attention, even though the quality of them is is, is excellent. I mean, uh, on this issue of what uh, is the big theme that should be debated at the election as opposed to during review, it seems to me very much it's whether the country is prepared to pay that premium for defence to support our own perceptions of ourselves as the first world or as one of the major nations and the contribution that defence makes to that. I mean, that should be the issue, but the Conservatives and the Labour Party, from their rhetoric so far, um, are in agreement over that, that it should. They won't spend the money. The ones who could make a very different view, particularly over the relationship with the United States, are the Liberal Democrats, if they were to take the line that influence should be focused in a rather different way and it should relate to um, respect through our own moral position. And this is a point that Michael Maguire's made about um, uh, that Britain could be perceived as the major country in the category alongside Canada and mm. the Scandinavian You're going to have to tell us who Michael Maguire is. He's a... Um, ex-captain Royal he, Navy. He was an ex-captain Royal Navy, but he's uh, best known as a Sovietologist during the um, during the Cold War, who said a lot of things that people didn't agree with, but he proved pretty nearly always to be right. Can I, can I just raise uh, one other aspect here? Um, uh, apart from the fact that you, you say, well, uh, the public ought to be well, James Arbuthnot said, engaging the public. You've got, you're saying, well, the governments or, or would-be governments have got to ask the public whether they would agree to go along with this and would agree to pay, pay for it. Nobody is willing to ask that question yeah. because it assumes that you are <coughs> therefore thinking of tinkering with defence and therefore you're tink- uh, tinkering with the first uh, job of government, that's security. Martin? Yes, because if you're going to increase defence spending in the next government, uh, if you think of the pie... You're going to take it from somebody else, some other department, and you have to make a very strong argument, let's say the National Health Service or overseas development or uh, police and so on, should receive less than our defence more. And that's going to be a very, very difficult thing to do. And I suspect what the government will do will just be gloss over it and say uh, the defence is safe in our hands. It's not, uh, uh, Alexander, it's not just the United Kingdom has got a problem like this, is it? Oh, everybody. Russia has this problem. Practically every country in Europe has this problem. And uh, uh, it, it's just that um, uh, defense suddenly became a dirty word for some unknown reason. And uh, uh, maybe maybe because of the two wars, maybe because of, of, of their overall feeling. But uh, it's probably going to be a, a very difficult task to keep it uh, go, going or growing. OK, now the important stuff. Um, it's been all Fool's Day, uh, April the 1st. Um, come on, Martin. I poisson mean, d'avril. <coughs> well, this is it. Say that again. Poisson d'avril. Poisson d'avril, the fish of... Uh, when you're in France... April fish. The, the April fish. They say that to you on April the 1st. OK, right. Now, let's get to why. Why do we have April Fool's Day on the 1st of April? Answer, Martin. It was originally the first day of the year, the first day of the new year. 
So Queen Elizabeth I actually died on New Year's Eve, yes, she but died it was March 30, the 31st, 31st then. March, not the 31st of December. Yeah, OK. But what happened? The French put the clocks, no, put the, uh, the, the calendar back in 1564. Yes. There used to be 10 months, uh, 10 months in the year, because if you look at October, that's the 8th month, according to the Julian calendar, and so November is the 11th and so on. And then they added January and February, and they decided that the 1st of January was the uh, first day of the new year. Uh, which was very, very confusing. Listen, I'm not even sure why we're bothering to tell people about April the 1st, but uh, it, it just reminds us, I suppose, there are a hell of a lot of things, that, sorry, a heck of a lot of things that we do every day, the military do, the Defence Ministry does, even the Armed, uh, armed Forces Committee does, even SETREP does. And we really ought to be asking why they do it. What is it that we do? And that's what SETREP's for. Anybody got anything else like that? Do you have, uh, or did in Russia, All Fool's Day? Yes, sure, sure. It had to do something with farming, but uh, I, I, I couldn't don't remember. Really remember and properly. the Germans have something similar. But in France, you're supposed to uh, say something stupid uh, or make a stupid prediction. Um, the, <laughs> Quickly. Yes, the beginning of every month, you're meant to say... Uh, White rabbits. Rabbits in the beginning. We used to do that in ships. We used to and actually announce this over the main broadcast. Uh, hares the night before and rabbits the first thing in the morning. So that happened at the beginning of every month, not just the first of April. Right, you get it all here. That's it for this week. My thanks to Michael Codner, Martin McCauley and to Alexander de Krasov. We'll be back the same time next week until Thursday. Guess what? I'm Christopher Lee. Mary, Mary's in the hut. Footwrap with Christopher Lee.